0: You can go ahead and grab your seat, and as you're doing that, grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front. They're going to walk towards the back. Just slip your hand up in the air, and uh, we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, keep this. It's our gift to you today. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word, and trust that it will be a blessing to you as you read it and hear God speaking to you from it. We are in Genesis chapter 24, and we have been making our way through the book of Genesis for some time now, but jumped back in uh, following the summer, and already what we have seen in the few chapters that we've covered are a birth, a death, and now we get to see a wedding. Well, we don't don't really get to see the wedding, but that's really what this passage is all about. It is about the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, but as we will see, this passage is about much more than a marriage. Like, like we've seen in the previous chapters, it's not simply about a birth or a death. It's, it's about a God. It's about a God who makes promises to his people. It's about a God who called a man named Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and told him, made a covenant with him promised him that he was going to give him land, offspring, and that he would be a blessing to the nations. And everything that we've been looking at points us back to this God who has committed himself to his people. And as I prayed prior to this message, what we see in this beautiful story, this narrative, is that God is also calling us to be committed to him. And I want to dive right into the passage, it's, it's a long passage, I don't know if you saw that, if you're looking at the, the Bible right now in front of you, you're like, are you sure we're dealing with all of this today, Ian? I, I know how you work, and that doesn't seem feasible. It is, listen, it is the longest passage in the book of Genesis, 67 verses, which actually tells us of its significance in this book. It's one of the ways that Moses, the author, is highlighting its its importance. This long narrative is telling us some incredibly important truths about how God is committed to us and how we should be committed to him. So I want to maybe ask the question, what should our commitment to God look like? If we are God's people, what should that commitment look like? And I want to show you three things from this text. As we follow God, we must be committed to first the governing theological purpose, Now, that's a fancy way here of just simply saying that there is a a theological anchor point in this passage that governs not only this passage, it should actually govern our lives. And then we've kind of been looking at this theological theme all throughout the book of Genesis. You can kind of say it like this, okay? You can say that God is fulfilling his promises by his power and through his providence for his praise, Let me say that again. This is the governing theological principle of the book of Genesis. It is the governing theological principle for the entire word of God. And it should be, listen, it should be the governing theological principle for the people of God. God is fulfilling his promises by his power and through his providence for his praise. God is working all things together for the, according to the counsel of his will. God is moving human history from its beginning point to its end point. God is sovereignly orchestrating all things to be accomplished according to his perfect plan, all by his magnificent power through all the particular means of providence, all so that he gets immense honor and praise. God is wanting to work in your life in the same way, and he's wanting you to see how all of this operates. So, now listen, the, the truth is we could make this, th- this the theme for the sermon every single week, okay? And in fact, it's kind of been a major theme we keep coming back to week after week, and, and we're going to keep coming back to it. We're going to see it over and over again, but since that's the case, here's what I would like to do. I, I want this to be the governing theological purpose that we're looking at this text through, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. I want us to move on to look at maybe some of the sub-themes that I think are prevalent in this text and that help us understand what commitment to God looks like, but I just want to make no mistake about it here. You can't have commitment to God without understanding this theological purpose. I want to just begin by reading the first nine verses. Let's dive in here. It says this. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Just notice that word blessing, okay? It's, it's reminding us of the promise that God made to Abraham. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac." The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Again, we've already seen blessing, we've seen offspring, and now we're seeing land. Just just see this. It's over and over. God's telling us the purpose here. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. This love story is bracketed by death. In fact, the chapter before this, we saw that it was Sarah who died. The matriarch of Israel has now passed from the scene. And then what we're going to see in chapter 25, it's going to begin with the death of Abraham. The patriarch is going to then pass from the scene. And, and Moses is telling us something by, by sandwiching this, this chapter between these two deaths. He's, he's answering a question that we're supposed to be asking, which is this. God made the promise to Abraham and Sarah... If both of them how are dead, how is his promise going to continue? And the answer is, is right here. The baton is going to be passed from Abraham and Sarah to their promised child, Isaac. But Isaac needs a wife because they now need to become the conduit, the means through which the blessing, the offspring, the promised offspring, can come into the world and be a blessing to the, the entire world. This is really speaking to how God is going to fully and finally accomplish or fulfill his promise to Abraham. And you need to ask yourself this question, how am I related to this promise of land, offspring, and blessing that God made to Abraham? It's the most important question you can ask. And really it comes down to this, you can boil it down to the New Testament depiction of this, how are you related to Jesus Christ? Because if you're related to Jesus Christ, then all of the promises made to Abraham are actually yours in Christ. You become one of the offspring of Abraham by faith. You get the land and the new heavens and the new earth when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. You will be blessed in Christ with every blessing in the heavenly places if if you are related to Christ by faith. And here, this passage is reminding us that God's promise isn't coming to an end just because the, the matriarch and the patriarch will come to an end. In fact, one commentator says that the patriarch here was discharging his responsibility to see that the divine plan for blessing could continue to the next generation. This is really about God accomplishing his plan of redemption for the world through this one family. This is why we are told that Isaac needs a wife uh, not from the Canaanites. Did you notice that? Abraham's pretty intent on emphasizing this point. You're not allowed to get one of these Canaanite women. You have to go back to my people and you need to get a wife for Isaac from my people. Now, you see, why, why is this so significant? If you know what's happening in the book of Genesis, then this makes complete sense. You see, the Canaanites are actually a cursed people. They come from the line of Ham, Ham, who, who had violated his father, had sinned against his father in some way, well, well, he was punished, and Noah actually cursed him. he cursed Ham and his descendants. And so we're actually being reminded here of this cosmic battle that's being played out between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what Abraham, or excuse me, what Abraham and Moses are communicating is this: You cannot mix the seed of the woman with the seed of the serpent. These two are antithetical. They're at odds. And the people in Canaan, they're cursed. They're God-haters. They're They're not God-worshippers. And what you need to find is a God-fearing woman for my wife who comes from the blessed line, not the cursed line. So he gets his servant, and they make this solemn oath, and, and he, he asks him, it's kind of bracketed, by the way, this solemn oath with brackets one through nine here, he asks his servant to put his hand under his thigh, and, and let me just say, thigh is a nice way of saying this, okay? I'll let you figure it out. You're like, what's happening here? This is a cultural sign of, of power and potency, and, and just as I read this, it just made me very thankful that when we make an oath with somebody, we just shake hands. This oath, though, is a reminder of how much Abraham is being governed by God's covenant purposes. He knows God has committed himself to Abraham, and Abraham has committed himself fully, completely to his God. And so, in this this masterful, romantic tale, there is a theological reflection on divine promise, divine power, divine providence. Contrary to stories that emphasize fate, you know, a good Hallmark movie where people just so happen to meet, it's all fate, fate. God actually here is orchestrating this beautiful, beautiful romance in this marriage. And this this passage will wrestle through the interplay between human responsibility and divine sovereignty, just like we too are supposed to wrestle through these realities in our lives. But the attention to detail in this passage is so staggering, it suggests that we need to pay attention to the particulars of God's providence, The main characters in this story are all governed by God's purposes and God's plan of redemption. And so I just wanna maybe begin, before we jump to the second point, by asking you this question. What governs your life? What purpose governs your life? Is it God's purpose, the, the one that he has decreed, the one that he has declared and established in his word, Or is it a purpose that you have borrowed from the world or created or curated for yourself What is driving you in your life today? When you wake up out of bed and you live your life, you're living for something. There's some purpose that you're grabbing a hold of and that is grabbing a hold of your heart. You may be unaware of it. You may not even realize its power and significance in your life. And and I would say to you, listen, that one of the things Christians need to do is regularly ask ourselves this question. Maybe daily, for what purpose am I living my life today? Is it for God? in his glory is it looking to his providence and his power and is it for his purposes you will be governed by some purpose my encouragement to you today is let it be god's not yours next we see this that we see the guiding spiritual principles So as we follow God, we must be committed not only to the governing theological purpose, we need to let him control that and control our hearts, but we need to allow him to guide us through the spiritual principles that that he establishes for us. And this passage, though it's a narrative, it is so rich in biblical principles, in wise principles for living a blessed life. We're introduced to this servant, and I want you to notice this is a servant who is clearly important in the household of Abraham. Some, some actually think that this unnamed servant in this passage is Eleazar from Damascus who we saw earlier in the book of Genesis. He was the one who was set to inherit all of Abraham's possessions because he was so faithful. Abraham looked at this man and was willing to say, listen, you, you can have it all if God doesn't provide for me the son that he has promised. I'll give it all to you. And here's why I tell you this. I don't know who it really is. Maybe it's Eliezer, maybe it's not. But the point of this story, the reason he remains nameless is because it doesn't matter who he is. And, and I just, I want to maybe begin by saying to some of us today, this is, I, I mean no offense, but I want to be as clear as I can. And when it comes to following God and, and, and living for God and being guided by God, listen, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not about you. Okay? And I hope, by the way, that's not offensive. I actually hope that's liberating for you because so much of what cripples us in our life is believing that everything is about us. Right? We're, we're so busy trying to make a name for us. We're so busy. We're so self-consumed and self-serving that, that it actually destroys so much of our life. And instead, the Bible comes along and liberates us, listen, from our own shackles of selfishness. And it says, listen, it's not about you. It's all about God. It's all about his glory. It's all about Jesus Christ and all God people say, amen. It is freeing to know that it doesn't all depend upon us, and that it's not all about us. And so here we see an example of this servant who remains unnamed, and yet, yet, he is the main human character in this story. Verse 10, it says, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Uh, most, most kind of scholars believe that this journey would have been about a 17-day journey by foot. And so he's taking a lot with him. It's a, it's a trek through the deserts. He needs possessions. He needs to figure out how he's going to honor this person that God is going to reveal to him. Verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. This servant believes in Abraham's God. He believes in Yahweh, the God of steadfast love and kindness, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He too is a believer. And one of the reasons I actually think we can relate to him is because he's not Abraham. He, he's, he's a lot more like us. He, he's actually, he, he hasn't experienced God showing up and revealing himself to him and revealing his plan in the same way that Abraham has, he has. He's kind of like us. He's received it from somebody who has met with God and God has spoken directly to him but passed it on. So he's kind of like us, receiving from the apostles, receiving from the prophets. Here, says in verse 13, says that, Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking... Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head. And worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman." Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. The servant operates by spiritual principles that guide him on this journey. And they stand out in this passage and they ought to guide us as well as we follow God. God here furthers the history of salvation, both, listen, through perfect providence and through faithful people. We often want to pit human responsibility and God's sovereignty against each other, but what we see here is that they actually work in tandem to accomplish God's good purposes. So what spiritual principles can we glean from from this man, this unnamed servant? I have five of them I want to just draw out quickly for you. The first is this, we need to act responsibly. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe he works all things according to the counsel of his will, and yet we also believe that God is sovereign over the ends and sovereign over the means. We, we do not believe it's sufficient to simply say in the Christian life, because God is sovereign, we just need to let go and let God. That, that's not what a robust belief in the sovereignty of God leads to. Not inaction, but action and responsible action at that. Belief in God's sovereignty actually compels action. It does not prevent it. This man believes wholeheartedly that God is going to lead. And by the way, this was incredibly important. Notice that he had said earlier that the angel of the Lord would lead this man on his journey. I want you to think about the original recipients of this book. The people who were reading this for the first time were the people who had been led by God out of Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness. And this has direct relevance to their very context. It's as if God's saying, like, listen, remember how I told you I was going to lead you through the wilderness? I just want you to know, look back through your history. This is how I always work. You can trust me. And so this man takes action, and he begins to Move. He recognizes that God has made a promise, and that requires Isaac to find a wife and to have children. So, instead of waiting, like many single people today, for God to simply drop a spouse off at the front door, this man actually goes out his front door, and he goes to find this bride whom God has ordained. God is not opposed to you taking action. And he goes with a plan. I think this is a well thought out plan. I want you to see that. And it reminded me of Psalm 37 verse 5, which says this, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. I want you to notice that that you have to have a way. You have to have a plan to commit in the first place, but then it needs to be committed to the Lord and it's done in faith. It's done in trust. It's believing that as you are acting in faith, God is going to act in faithfulness to you. This story is a case study in that truth. And so this man, he goes back to to Nahor... It's Abraham's brother, and he, he lands at a well. We talked about this not long ago. Uh, good things happen at wells in the book of Genesis and throughout Bible. In particular, men meet spouses at wells. That's <laughs> this is not a principle we can apply easily today, but the, the point is, listen, wells were this source of provision, right? Without water, you die in the desert. And it was this constant symbol, this reminder that it's God who provides. God's the one who gives. God is faithful. And so here he is at this well. He knows, he's wise, he's shrewd. And so he understands how the culture works. He knows that the women come out at night to get water from the well. This whole plan is crafted, I think, in accordance with God's word and God's will. Now remember, the only word he had had was the word that had come through Abraham. But he knew it, he believed it. He believed every word that Abraham had said to him about what God had revealed about himself, about his plan of redemption for the world. He believed it so wholeheartedly that he willingly walked out the doors with a plan to accomplish his master's will so fitting. And this is how you and I are called to act responsibly. If you're in Christ today, if you are a believer, you need to act responsibly by, listen, by living according to the word of God and the will of God. And it is difficult to act responsibly as a Christian if you are not in God's word and therefore not acquainted with God's will. I want to remind you of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was not meant to be some rote recitation. It begins by saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What's the next line, Church your will be done. But here's, here's, listen, here's what that presupposes. It presupposes you have some kind of understanding of what the will of God actually is, what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. Otherwise, you're praying for something that you do not really understand, and you do not even know, therefore, whether or not God is actually accomplishing his will. Right? You can't see it. You can't acknowledge it. You can't praise him for it if you don't know it. There's a desperate need for, for Christians to become more biblically literate, more versed in the scriptures, more doctrinally sound. The New Testament spends so much time emphasizing this point. It, literally, I could, I could read verse after verse after verse. Just It teaches, it warns us about false teaching, false doctrine. It, it's meant to guide us and protect us. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may be able to test and approve what is the will, of God It's over and over and over again, Christian, listen to me, if you are not in the Word, you will never know the will of God in your life. You'll constantly be floundering, you'll constantly be confused. you'll be like wandering in the dark, when meanwhile it's like God's given you the source of light, the lamp unto your feet. It's right there. And I'm just, I'm beseeching you, I'm urging you to put aside other things in your life for what is actually going to benefit your life in ways you can't possibly fathom or grasp until you actually do it we got to be, listen, more and more, I'm more convinced of this, and I could, I could preach, the rest of the message could be de- dedicated to this simple idea, but I'm so convinced of this. we got to be a people who love the word of God, who are led by the word of God, who live the word of God. It's got to run through our veins. Abraham and his servant are driven by and committed to both the Word of God and the will of God. Are you, will you be, even today, will you begin to forge and foster new habits and patterns in your life so that you can be a person who is well acquainted with God's Word and His will? Secondly, we can learn this spiritual principle. We need to pray dependently. I love that in verse 12. I hope you caught that. This whole process is just bathed in prayer. And he said, oh Lord God of my master, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And he begins this prayer, this long prayer about what he's asking for from the Lord. It's very detailed, I want you to catch this. His prayer is very detailed, it's very specific, and it's very dependent. God, you've gotta make this clear. Do this God, show this God. Lead me God. This is the first recorded instance of prayer for specific guidance in all the scriptures, and I'm not sure there was ever an expedition more constantly bathed in prayer than this one. This servant, he knew the word of God. Listen, so he knew he knew that the salvation and redemption of the cosmos was dependent upon the success of this mission. Did you catch the gravity of that. This is massive. And so he just, he knew this was so outside of his ability to accomplish apart from the power of God. How is it that you tap into the very power of God in your life? How is it that your life is prospered? Not just you know the word and will of God, you are committed to pray constantly, fervently, passionately. As Paul says, to pray without ceasing. We're not told specifically of all the prayers the servant uttered on his way out and back from Nahor, but if the immediacy and fervency of this recorded prayer here is any any indication, then I think each step of the journey was marked by a fervent seeking of God's direction and blessing. Prayer, listen, prayer is no substitute for action, and action can be no substitute for prayer. Prayer. Again, these two things, they're not opposed to each other. They're supposed to work together, hand in hand. The servant prayed and worked at the same time because he knew that prayer is given not to make work unnecessary, listen, but to make work effective. Prayer is not given to make work unnecessary. It's given to make our work effective. I'll just draw your attention again to the Lord's Prayer. And I think this is a real kind of pressure point for, for the church today, and, and in particular the church in our culture. I was reading a book uh, over the last few weeks, and, and I came across um, this, this paragraph on prayer and prayerlessness that really I think I resonated with. It was a pastor writing this book, and he said this, he said this, he said, in all my years of ministry, I don't think I've ever had someone ask me Teach me how to pray. That's how the Lord's Prayer begins. Do you know that? His disciples came to him, Lord, teach me how to pray. And he, I, just, I had to think about this, but in all my years of ministry, I've never had somebody ask me that very question. Teach me how to pray. We're like, we didn't have to ask you, Ian. Jesus already told us. Okay, fair. But my point is, is I think there's more to it than just that. He goes on, he says, you know, I've been asked about parenting, dinosaurs in the Bible, where cats go when they die. We all know that. You take that however you want. Uh, I'm mean, not just. But then he says, but, I, "But I've never been asked how to pray. Why? Why?" And then he gives some answers that I think are actually really, really, I think spot on. He, he says, for one, in our culture in particular, affluence. We have so much, right? Everything's everything's at our, at our you know, within hands reach, within arm's reach. We can just grab whatever we want. We have money in the bank. We can run down the street to get food. Like, like, think about it. When they were praying in the first century, give us this day our daily bread, they actually needed God that day to give them their daily bread. When was the last time you really sensed that kind of neediness? We don't, I don't think, in our culture. He says, affluence possibly contributes. And he says, entertainment... And he says, not too busy, too distracted, too distracted. And then he quotes John Piper, who said this One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Paul Miller, in his book on prayer, says this If you are not praying, it may be because you are quietly confident. That time, money, and talent are all you need in life to overcome. And listen, the way to advance God's purposes, both in your life and in this world, is through prayer. That's the designed means that God has given us. It's the way that we advance his purposes, we see his providence, It's not by trying something new, but we're turning to something very old. And so I want to encourage you to pray dependently. And I want to maybe give you four things to help you in this, because I understand the struggle that this is. One of the things that that I do when I find that Prayer is becoming a struggle in my kind of spiritual life. I'm getting really busy and a lot of things going on. I find it very easy to get into the Word and to read the Word, but oftentimes the thing to go if I got to, you know, look at my, my disciplines, um, prayer is going to be short-changed. So one of the things I started doing to really uh, prioritize prayer was I placed it first in my kind of process of, you know, my morning routine. And again, this isn't prescriptive. I'm just kind of telling you some things that help me, and maybe it'll help you. So, so in other words, the first thing I do when I, when I get before the Lord, after I get the cup of coffee, which blessings from the Lord abound, and is I, I pray. And I pray, I pray very specifically, very carefully, and maybe that's the, maybe the second thing I can encourage you to do is um, make a list. um, This is not, guys. This is not deep theology. Uh, This is not profound in any way. But it is really helpful. Make a list. Write down prayer requests. Write down categories of people's names that you want to pray for. And then, and then, don't just make a list. Actually, write down the the kind of prayers for each person, so you can follow a road map for your prayers. I I would also add this: um, add God's word to it. Don't pray apart. Don't just read God's word and pray read God's word to fuel your prayers. Pray the word of God, and then record it. Write it down. Write down your prayers. We have a record of this man's prayers, and it's actually, listen, it's actually for a very important theological reason, okay? There's a reason, did you catch this? There's a reason why this prayer is recorded, because we're going to see God answer specifically and, and I'll just say this, you will never see God answer specifically if you don't start praying specifically. Pray dependently, and, and then, then you do this. Here's a spiritual principle here. Third, discern carefully. Discern carefully. This servant, he crafts this test to try to discern how the Lord is leading. Now, I'm not suggesting you test the Lord, okay? I, 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 so just be careful what you take from this. But it is interesting that he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to discern I do know this, that the spiritual principle, the call to discern is is something that is supposed to guide our lives. This is what the Word of God makes abundantly clear. I I already quoted for you Romans 12, 1 and 2, um, that, that we may discern, that we may test and approve what is the will of God. But he comes up with this test to figure out who is going to be marriage material for his master's son. And he uses the ancient test. It's an age-old test. It's the camel test. he's, he, now listen, he's rolled up with 10 camels. Remember, this is, this is like a full-blown entourage he's got here. 10 camels. It's been a long journey. This is kind of like a, a, a motorcade. Clearly, he's somebody very important. He, he's serving somebody who has great wealth, which we find out later is true in this story. And then he, he gives this simple test. He asks for some water. And her response indicates that that she, Rebecca, is a woman of character. She is virtuous. And, and not only does she give him, notice the words quickly, when we read right there, quickly give him water from her jar, she quickly goes above and beyond what he's even asked of her. He was testing her character, listen, by the word of God. He understood what good godly character looked like, that there was a servant's heart, a generous heart, a willingness to bless others that would be evident in a a godly individual. The word of God is always to be the standard for our discernment. We test and approve everything according to the word of God. Which is just another reason why you have to know the word of God. And so here's Rebecca, not only is she beautiful and chaste, she has godly character. Verse 21 shows us that, that he's discerning and he's, he's not quick to jump the gun. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's, he's paying attention. He's meticulous. He's being very, very careful as he discerns. In other words, he's not being rash. He's not letting his emotions overcome him or overtake him or guide him. He's letting truth dictate direction in his life. And God does reveal it. He turns and he starts to give her gifts. And the giving of gifts here suggests that he discerns admirable qualities in her. Listen, we can be confident that God will direct our paths as we carefully discern according to his word. And again, know the word, know the word, know the word, love the word of God. Don't let your emotions lead you. It's so easy to do that. Seek what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. You will only know that when you know the word and are seeking to discern carefully. Finally, or fourthly, sorry, I got one more after this. Obey completely. Let's pick back up and read a little bit more. Beginning of verse 29 says, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. We're gonna meet this character a little bit later in the book of Genesis as well. Laban ran toward the man to the spring, and I just want you to just hear this, okay? I'm not going to expound much upon this, but just you tell me what you think dominates Laban. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. And here's what I want you to see. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said to him, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. You shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. And then he goes on to rehearse the story again. And he does so in a very unique way. He does so in a way that highlights God's sovereignty in the process, God's providential leading. So he leaves things out, but he's making it clear. Look how God was guiding every step of the way. Look how obvious it is that God's hands are all over this. This entire section, it stresses the servant's faith as he obeyed his master to the fullest extent. Laban tries later on, we'll see, to keep him there. He, he, he says to him, I believe it's a little further down there. Uh, then Laban in Bethel verse 50, answered and said, "The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken." Uh, just before that, actually, I, I missed it. He tries to hold him back and suggests that he stays for 10 days, and, and, and he says, "No. I need to go now." and we're being given this picture that the, the only thing on this servant's mind is the mission given to him by the master. He's not being held up. He's not going to be delayed. He's not gonna be slowed down. He doesn't care about, listen, he's, he's, I'm not here for your food. I have a message to give you. I, 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 this is of great significance and importance. There is this wholesale obedience to the master. He's not in it for himself. He sees the bigger picture. The story is only complete when the mission is complete. And I think we learn from this, what we talk about often, that we are called to obey right away, all the way, and we are called to obey with the right heart. This servant embodies all of this. And in contrast to Laban, who seems to be more concerned about what he can get out of the deal... He's captured, his eyes are fixed upon the world, worldly riches, worldly wealth. He sees, oh, this is a wealthy man. I mean, maybe I'll get a little bit of money from this deal. We know, we know how deceptive he's going to be for his own gain later on with Jacob. This man is ruled by the world. I wonder, as you look at this and just consider your own life, what is distracting you from obeying God completely? What's slowing down your obedience to the Lord? What's holding your heart? Whatever that is, whatever the Lord maybe brings to your heart and mind, even now, I would, I would urge you to confess that to the Lord. Repent of it. Give it all to Him. And, and perhaps you cannot give it to Him, listen, because what God is actually calling you to give to Him today is yourself. You're here today, and you've actually realized that I've not actually surrendered my life to the Lord. I haven't committed myself to the Lord. I haven't surrendered all that I am to the Lord. And so I, I can't, I can't then give him complete obedience. I, can't, I haven't even obeyed with the very first thing he's called me to do, the command he's given to give all of my life up to follow him. And I would, I would just appeal to you today. Don't let today just be another day where you maybe try to muscle it through in your own strength to please the Lord, where you try to figure out your, your life apart from God. Let this be the day where you come in humble and complete obedience by surrendering to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Confess that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Believe that there was a promised offspring who did come, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the savior of the world, and he came from heaven to earth, a servant on a mission to find you. And you may have not even been looking for him or even known that he was coming for you, but he came for you. He died in your place, and he overcame the grave so that you, you, listen, can step out of death and into the life of Jesus Christ. You can know his purposes for your life. You can know his power in your life, power to transform you, listen, to make you a new creation in Christ. The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and living in you. There's nothing that God cannot do in your life. And one day, that same power is gonna renovate and recreate the entire cosmos. That's the power of God that we have. And that's what we tap into when we surrender. Listen, the key to accessing power of God is by surrendering to the power of God over us. Believing in him by faith like Abraham, like this servant. And then our life, listen, becomes this This act of sacrifice of worship unto him as we obey him now not out of duty but out of delight not in order to earn his grace or to achieve his grace but because we've already received it it's an act of love then to obey him completely and though it's hard sometimes and we battle the flesh and the spirit or are at war with one another there is a joy that comes in this obedience we know that our God has given everything for us and so we long, we long daily to give everything to him. When we bow in that kind of submission, not only can we obey out of love, we can actually bow in worship. The, third, the fifth principle story here is worship thoughtfully. This is the high point of the narrative, and and it should be the high point of your life if you're in Christ today. Verse 26 and 27, I don't know if you caught that. As he sees uh, God answering his prayers, it drives him to his knees, and it causes him to lift his voice in praise. Praise. The man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. And listen, I love this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me. He knows who this God is and he is worshiping him, not only for who this God is, but for what this God has done. He has paid attention to the particular providence of God. And I think too often we forget to thank God for answered prayer. Praise is the proper punctuation mark for answered prayer. Verse 48, he does it again, and commentator Alan Ross says about this passage, he says, it was such a marvelous story that it had to be repeated God had to be given credit and all this before the servant's personal needs were attended to. The servant was balanced to make sure everyone knew this was a work of God, not a chance meeting, not cleverness or human wisdom. The marriage then was truly made in heaven. Our praise ought not to be generic and trivial, church. It ought to be thoughtful and specific. There is such an important connection here that you cannot miss. If you pray little, you will praise little. If you pray little, you will praise little. But listen, conversely, it is true that much prayer leads to much praise because those who pray more see God answer more. And when you see God answer more, your heart delights to sing his praise. I got one more point with three quick thoughts for you. I want to look quickly at the glorifying ethical practices. I mentioned some sub-themes here that are important and helpful for us. This passage is so rich, and it helps us think properly about three things in particular. I just want to quickly draw to your attention. First, about marriage, modesty, and ministry. Rachel here is, is clearly being elevated as a godly woman and a godly example from whom we can learn much. I want you to first just notice the ministry aspect of this. She is a servant. This is what makes her stick out. She, she is hospitable. She's selfless, and she's going above and beyond. And th- this is always the mark of godly character. It's what sells this servant on her suitability as a spouse. And here's a, a little kind of dating tip for some of you. If you're married, this is still a marriage tip. But focus more on being the right kind of person than trying to find the right kind of person. If you're married, focus more on being the right kind of person rather than trying to make your spouse into the right kind of person. If you're not married and you're, you're kind of beginning that process or you want to be married, listen, be marriageable material. At the heart of a healthy marriage is this kind of selflessness that's exhibited by Rebecca. Rebecca. A servant's heart. It's, it's a Christ-like quality that creates the environment for a marriage, a relationship to thrive. And I just want you to notice, listen, the disposition of the heart is greater than the beauty of the body. She is physically attractive, but you want to know what this passage points out as being far more attractive? Her godly character. And this is true whether you're a man or a woman. What God cares most about is your heart, the, the quality of your godliness, For all of us, we ought to emulate her in our ministry, our life, in the church, and in the world. We ought to be hospitable and generous, hardworking and kind servants to all. Secondly, I just want you to notice what's mentioned about her modesty, and let me kind of combine this with the idea of sexual purity. Rachel is described, yes, as beautiful, but she's described as a, a virgin, as someone who is sexually pure. And this is important for her integrity and the integrity of the promised line. Her offspring must be from her union with Isaac. And so that's what is kind of kind of cradling this idea here. But she's this modest woman. And near the end of the passage, let's look at it really quickly together. She agrees to go back in verse 52 it says, "When Abraham's servants heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord." The servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave them to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. This is what I was referencing earlier. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young man remain with us, the young woman, excuse me, remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Prophetic words. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahoy Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And here's the hallmark moment. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I love this picture she sees him and she's modest she veils herself there's a cultural component here it's anticipating the, where, the the marriage that's it's about to come but it's it's a good reminder that the gift of the body is so good it's so beautiful and it's so pleasing that what she's communicating is something we need to embrace in our culture I'm not going to reveal it to everyone In the church, listen, we, we are not body shamers, it's just the opposite. We value the reason we we promote modesty, the reason the scriptures do, is because we value the body so much that we're not willing to share it with everyone. Our culture devalues the body by making it nothing important, selling it as a product to be used or giving it away freely to anyone and everyone. Our culture believes that the way to attract is to take more clothes off. She puts more clothes on. Purity is something to be cherished, protected, and promoted. You say, well, what if sexual impurity is a part of my past or even a part of my present right now? Does that mean that I'm permanently ruined, that marriage is off the table, that I'm somehow put on the shelf with a scarlet letter on my my life? The answer is no. There are Rahabs and Tamars in the very genealogy of our Savior. He takes sinners, those who are unclean. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Christ, we can be redeemed, restored, and recreated. Lastly, we see here this marriage. This chapter really is about marriage, it ends with a marriage at least. And this marriage was essential to the redemptive plan of God for the world. In a culture that in many ways dishonors and devalues marriage, the Bible upholds it as a divinely established institution that is blessed by God. Marriage is precious to God. Godly marriages point people to the gospel. Not everybody will be married, and that's okay. Our Savior was single too. But, but here what we see too is that the marriage here in the family line is incredibly important you notice, Isaac is married within his physical family. That's not an ethical practice I'm advocating. But we must marry. Listen, here's the, the New Testament transposes this principle. You know what it says? We must marry within the family of God. We marry in Christ. We cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Why? Because at the very center of a healthy Christian marriage, you have the same purpose. You have the same focus. You have the same Savior that drives your entire life. Every part of your life is connected to Christ. And it creates the deepest, most profound meaning for your marriage. Rebecca here is his counterpart to Abraham. She's this woman of faith. Of all the things that make her beautiful, it is her faith that tops the list. I'm going to invite the worship team out now. And I want to invite you to prepare your heart to respond in song. Listen, men and women, married or single, young or old, nothing is more important than this. Faith in Jesus Christ. Just as the faithful servant sought out Rebecca when she was unaware of the bridegroom, so too, long before you ever knew him. Just remember, Jesus, the servant of God, sought you out. God sent his spirit to draw you to himself, and maybe the spirit of God is wooing you today. I wonder, would you respond like Rebecca in faith, leave everything to follow him? If you have, will you then respond like the faithful servant here in this passage, who is sent out by his master He's sending his servants out, those who are faithfully following him to be part of this grand plan of redemption, church. Our names may never be known, but that's okay. We're not here to make our names known. We're here to make one name known, the name of Jesus Christ, the name above every other name, all glory, all honor to him. That's what we want. Amen, church? Why don't you stand with me as we sing, our Lord, our Lord, how awesome are your ways, how majestic is your name in all the earth.